Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This episode was honestly one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. I'm joined by the incredible Cornell West, philosopher, activist and artist who's written dozens of books, featured on several music albums and even had a part in some of the Matrix films. But more important than all that has been his incredible advocacy for socialism, feminism, anti-racism and against white supremacy, which has made him something of a moral leader in the US and around the world. In today's interview, we discuss socialism, culture, spirituality and much more. I want to say a big thank you to all our listeners for all their support for the show so far. We're close to 100,000 downloads now and we've hit 250 ratings on iTunes, which is great. A really quick and easy way to help the show is just to go to iTunes and give us a rating. I also want to say a big thank you to all our patrons. We're so close to reaching our fundraising target now, so if you've been considering becoming a patron for a while but haven't gotten around to it, please do consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. That's patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. By becoming a patron, you'll get access to the full hour-long interviews that we do with all our guests, including those with Jeremy Corbyn, Naomi Klein, and of course, this episode with Cornell West. We're also going to be selling merch soon exclusively to patrons and providing exclusive offers on subscriptions to Tribune and my forthcoming books, The Corona Crash and Futures of Socialism. A big thank you to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for providing us with the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for updates, all with the handle at a world to win pod. Now, here is the amazing Cornell West discussing Black Lives Matter, Biden and the US elections. I hope you enjoy this truly incredible episode. Hello, Dr. West, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It is such an honor to have you on the show. So we're going to talk about a few news stories of relevance this week first. And the first one I've picked is an article about an interview you did with Al Jazeera recently, which is, uh, it says, Cornell West, the choices between disaster and catastrophe. And you said in this interview, with the neo-fascist gangster in the White House, we have to be part of an anti-fascist coalition. Um, So two questions around this, I guess. Do you think that that anti-fascist, anti-Trump coalition can be successful? And do you think a a Biden presidency will deliver anything approaching the changes that the U.S. needs right now? Well, first, let me say it's a blessing to be in conversation with you. I salute your intellectual work. I salute your courage on the ground as activists as well. And uh, uh, in so many ways, you know, what I have to say is uh, it overlaps with what you have been arguing, which is that. We've got to be consistent in our critique of empire, of capitalism, of patriarchy, of homophobia and transphobia and male supremacy and white supremacy. And how we attempt to do that is to hold on to our intellectual integrity and our political courage. So that in telling the truth about Donald Trump, neo-fascists and the gangster with collaborators and facilitators 
And he is pushing the country, moving the country toward genuine fascism. Wholesale disregard of the law, the rule of big military, the rule of big money, Wall Street and Silicon Valley, crushing workers, marginalizing women, scapegoating Mexicans and Muslims and Jews and black people and brown people uh, and indigenous people. Now, I think with Biden, what you have is a neoliberal disaster because you have someone who can stop the quick move toward American fascism. And that's very important because with fascism in place, my voice is gone and it probably would you know, kill many of us anyway. So that he can stop that move toward fascism, but his neoliberal rule is still going to be tied to Wall Street, tied to capital, tied to militarism, tied to Africa and in Africa, tied to deeply reactionary policies in the Middle East with Netanyahu and so forth. So we don't want to lie about Biden. We don't want to uh, uh, follow any illusions simply because we're confronted with such an ugly fascist Frankenstein-like figure in Trump. And so we're really between a rock and a hard place, which is usually where the left is, you know, in the last 50 years. It really is. So the next story, and I suppose this is very much related to talking about Trump as this kind of gangster, is that there's this poll from CNN and it shows that support for the Black Lives Matter movement has dropped since June. So a majority still support the protest, 55%, but that's down from 67% in June. Does that concern you? And is there any way you think we can revert it? Or is this all just part of Trump's strategy? I think it's part of Trump's strategy. There's been a wholesale attack and assault on the Black Lives Matter movement to characterize it uh, as a terrorist movement, to characterize it as a hate movement. That's a sign of success. That means you actually constitute a substantive threat to the status quo. You actually constitute a substantive threat, not just to the police using their power to murder folk, but it connecting it to a critique of Wall Street power and Wall Street crimes, connecting it to a critique of the Pentagon power and Pentagon crimes. So in that sense, the intensity of the attack is a sign of the degree to which you constitute a threat to the status quo. And I think that's very much where we want to be, where we, we just have to counter those lies with some truths and create some kind of countervailing mm. movement, institutions, journals, as well as individuals on the ground or in any other place. Mm. Now, of course, the other, you know, huge world altering thing that is going on at the moment is the pandemic. And there's this Absolutely. article with well, this, uh, sorry, poll that NPR did showing that the pandemic is widening the racial wealth gap. So 60% of black households, 72% of Latino households and 55% of Native American households are facing serious financial problems since the pandemic began, next to 36% of households, of white households. We know the unemployment crisis, the evictions crisis and the actual burden of the disease as well are all being felt hardest by black and Latino Americans. So how can people of color in the U.S., and their white allies organize their way out of this deep and pervasive crisis. That's why, one, we have to have a critique of the system, and we have to have alternative visions and ways of being 
that sustain our resilience in the face of the system. As long as we have isolated issues, as long as we remain in our silos and remain in our respective spaces without solidarity, we don't have a chance at all. Uh, so it's so easy to fetishize race or gender as, as, as an identity and not connect that identity to a critique of a predatory capitalist system, a critique mm-hmm. of imperial tentacles of that system, so that we can we, we recognize the degree to which we have to have a strong solidarity around working people and poor people that embraces race and gender and sexual orientation, but it doesn't isolate those identities that we lose sight of the integrity and the consistency of our critique of predatory capitalism. So now we're going to go into the main part of the show where we're going to talk about your life and work and what a life it has been. I mean, you've had this incredible wide-ranging life and career as a philosopher, activist, public intellectual artist, and really kind of moral figure for U.S. society. So you obviously, you know, spent your early career in the academy studying and teaching kind of philosophy and theology. What made you want to study those big ideas to begin with? And also, what radicalized you? Well, I mean, one, you know, I come from a very, very loving uh, West family. The highest honor I've ever had is being the second son of Irene and Clifton. I'll never be the human being my father was. He died 26 years ago. My mother's still alive, 88 years young, with the elementary school named after her so that uh, she and dad really uh, provided so much love and support. So it freed me up because I was very much a uh, gangster growing up. I was was beating people up all the time. I got kicked out of school for not to... Me too. (laughs) Is that right? Same thing. Same (laughs) thing. (laughs) You and Britain and me in California were refusing (laughs) to salute the flag. You know, my great uncle had been lynched and they wrapped him in the flag. So I associated that flag with something very ugly and vicious. But when I came into intellectual growth, it was both rooted in the church. I've always viewed myself as a revolutionary Christian in the legacy of Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer. I worked closely with the Black Panther Party, so I already had a critique of capitalism, had a critique of empire, had a critique of homophobia and patriarchy, because that's what we talked about uh, in, in, the, in the Black Panther uh, headquarters. I was teaching the breakfast program. I was teaching in the prison, Norfolk prison where Malcolm X was. I could never join the party because I was a Christian and they were deeply secular and that was fine. You know, they had strong critiques of the church. I can understand that, but I have my own understanding of, uh, of God and Jesus and struggle and revolution. So we remained very, very close, but I couldn't join. And by the time I went to college, I was then exposed to you know this magnificent uh, wave of ideas of the life of the mind you know so I I fell in love with uh, so many of the towering intellectual figures some of them would be Nietzsche's challenge it would be deeply Marx it would be William Morris it would be William Hazlitt it would be Virginia Woolf Raymond Williams. 
all of these folk, and then Edward Zaid, mm. all of these folk meant much to me. Now, I was within the academy, so I was studying with John Rawls and Hilary Putnam and Stanley Cavell and uh, Martha Nussbaum and Martin Kilson and Preston Williams and off to Princeton with Richard Rorty and Sheldon Wolin. Uh, these were towering figures who just opened up intellectual life and shattered a lot of my parochialism. I always remain, you know, a kind of um, Jesus-loving, free black man concerned about poor and working people. But it allowed me to become part of a larger conversation. So the C.L.R. James and mm. Du Bois and Krumah and, and others meant much, you know, and Nandi and Ambedkar and India. It goes on and on and on. Uh, Sister Roy from India and what have you. So I, I was having a great time, you know. I have a good time in life and a mind, but I always try to use it as a form of weaponry for empowerment and ennoblement and enablement of vulnerable people, no matter who they are, physically challenged or children or the elderly and and so forth. I do believe that, um, you know, there's a lot of heterogeneous elements in the Hebrew Bible of genocide and patriarchy that we have to hold at arm's length. But there is this notion of hesed, that the highest form of being human is to spread loving kindness and steadfast love to the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the oppressed. And so I'd always believe that, you know, if I was going to be part of what Moses was concerned about, which was deliverance and liberation, that I had to have a profound critique of not just Pharaoh, but the system that held Pharaoh in place. That's why I've never been that deeply impressed by the pyramids, because working in poor people can never be buried inside of those. They could build the pyramids, but they could never be buried inside the pyramids. You see, so I I have a deep uh, critique of Pharaohs, whatever color they come in, whatever gender they are even when they have magnificent technological <laughs> edifices, that when you really look at the system, you say, no, I'm with the poor people and working people who built the pyramids. And they are forever pushed out, forgotten, rendered invisible. Mm-hmm. That's who I'm in solidarity. And I did first learn that in a serious way from Hebrew scripture. I really did to be in solidarity with the uh, with the oppressed, similarly so with Jesus coming into the city, running out the money changers. Who are the money changers in the American empire? Wall Street, Pentagon, White House, Congress, Hollywood, all of them in the same place. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of them in the same place. Jesus runs them all out. And that's the reason why he's put on a cross and crucified by the most powerful empire of the day. Mm. Uh, so that in that way, there is what I call a prophetic spark in that Hebrew scripture from which a Jesus, from which a uh, uh, Muhammad in his own prophetic way that leads toward a Malcolm X, for example. And so in that regard, even a lot of my secular brothers and sisters who I love very dearly, they would have to acknowledge that even their deep solidarity with oppressed peoples, once they demythologize the stories, comes from this love, care, concern for the vulnerable that was carried within these religious institutions, even as those religious institutions tended to uh, to violate. And that's why R.H. Tani in the British tradition, he's always been a hero of mine. 
you know, acquisitive society and equality and religion and the rise of capitalism. He's always meant much to me, very much so. Um, I'm sorry to go on and on, but... No, um, I, I that really resonates with me, and I want to hear talk more about it, actually, because, um, you know, I yes. would call myself a, a Christian and a socialist, as would, you know, one of my greatest political heroes, Tony Benn. He was one of those Christian socialists. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's so, um, true. I mean... Yeah, it just seems so obvious to me that, you know, you don't get collective social transformation without some form of spiritual transformation, whatever religion, whatever spirituality it comes from. Absolutely. And you have to be honest about that because, you see, one of the ways in which capitalism reproduces itself is the commodification of everybody and everything. And therefore, to create those hollow men that T.S. Eliot was talking about, (laughs) to create these morally vacuous, spiritually empty creatures whose sense of being in the world is to be titillated by the bombardment of commodities. Yeah. And so they don't have access to these non-market values like deep love, deep justice, mm-hmm. a deep solidarity, service to others, taking a risk in being of service to others, being with, not over and above, mm-hmm. but alongside in that way. And uh, of course, you know, Martin King, Himself, democratic socialist, yeah. is, is another grand example. We could go on. Yes. So many of the early Reinhold Niebuhr, more man and more society, mm. uh, as a democratic socialist. Uh, we've got a whole wave of these folk who play such an important role in trying to keep alive some sense of deep love and justice. And, mm. But also the beauty, the beautiful, I mean, the love of beauty. Because, see, I come from a people whose dominant forms of spirituality after 244 years of the most barbaric form of modern slavery. Can't learn how to read or write. Can't worship God without white supervision. The average slave dies at 26 years old. He says, so it was love of the beautiful. You raise your voices, you steal away at night and ring shouts, holding hands, right? You're singing these beautiful songs, swing low, sweet chariot, and wade in the water, God gonna trouble the water. It was not just theological, it was artistic. It was a way of holding on to something beautiful in the face of terror and trauma, the kind of thing that Rilke reminds us in, in his poems, how the beauty becomes itself a source of resilience in the face of terror and trauma being institutionalized decade after decade after decade so that music becomes fundamental in your life. Arts in general become fundamental in your life. And so the connection of love of truth and love of beauty and love of justice and for me, love of God are all intertwined, very much intertwined. So building on that, you know, that discussion around, around culture as well as politics. I mean, yes, you're absolutely. You know, you're not just a towering intellectual figure, you're a, a towering cultural figure. You've, you know, had albums, you've been in films and TV and, you know, you have this amazing, um, you know, way of talking about culture and particularly the kind of, you know, culture of, of Black America in a way that is so, yeah, just profound and revealing. The thing I wonder is that, you know, with modern kind of mainstream culture, like TV, as you said, like Hollywood being so white, so commercialized, so commodified, so financialized, can it ever be anything other than oppressive? Or are there ways to kind of challenge it by participating in it? 
I think that, you know, uh, Adorno and others have taught us that there's always a, um, a cross grain within any hegemonic formation mm. that's like a seed to be teased out. That can be a critique of that hegemonic formation within that formation itself, that kind of imminent critique that's always already at work. It's very much like the cross. You see, the Roman Empire thought that the cross had completely suffocated all talk about Jesus, all talk about disciples. Peter himself denies Jesus three times, so you don't have to worry about their courage. You don't have to worry about their witness. It's only the women who hold on, Mary Magdalene and others. But lo and behold, the blood at the bottom of that cross constitutes certain kind of droplets of love. They were called the way, the way of love. They were following this way of love that makes absolutely no sense in the eyes of the world. So that praise of folly that Erasmus talked about with such, such genius. So that there's an, even within that Roman empire, there was still something that if you tease it out long enough and far enough, you get a critique of the money changers. You get a justice, justice thou shalt pursue. You get a love of the leper, the love of those who have been demonized, otherized, dishonored, degraded, and so forth, you see. And I think that's true in any hegemonic form, which includes Hollywood films, it includes music uh, uh, of various sorts, includes paintings and what have you, you see. But there's always an ambiguity there. It's like a left-wing reading of Rembrandt. You know, you can keep track of that profound humanity of the prodigal son or any of those great paintings in which all of our contradictions and all of our incongruities, you can see in the face, you can see in their bodies and so forth. And so that sense of sensitivity to suffering. But at the same time, you know, you've got the patrons who are paying for it. Mm. You've got those pictures themselves deployed in the palaces and in the houses of the ruling classes and the rich of Amsterdam and what have you. And so it it always can go either way. And I think, you know, in the end, you know, we're always in but not of the world in terms of against the grain, to be a socialist Mm. in a world in which you got a global capitalist economy, you know, to be a supporter of women's humanity, decency, equality in a thoroughly patriarchal world, a white supremacy that is global, that tries to teach black people we have the wrong skin Mm. pigmentation, the wrong shape of noses, the wrong hair texture, the wrong hips and so forth. And this has been at work for centuries now, three, four hundred years, but rooted, grounded in a predatory capitalism. Mm. It's always a, requires that integrity, honesty, decency, and courage to be willing to, uh, to bear witness, mm. to live and to die for something bigger than you. What you were just talking about there, that kind of, I guess you call it kind of non-dualistic thinking, right? The idea that, you know, inherent within any concept, formation, you know, object, whatever, there is the seeds of its opposite. There's the yin and the yang and the yang and the yin. There's, you know. Simultaneous that tension between. Uh, uh, elements and, and, and features and so forth. You know that I, I think you're right. You see that obviously in a, you know, a lot of religions, probably less so kind of modern Christianity, which tends to be quite kind of enlightenment dualistic sometimes, but definitely in early Christianity, and but also in socialism and analyses of capitalism, because you know this whole system is based on this idea that 
capitalism is full of these contradictions that will ultimately lead to its own destruction and disruption. Um, I don't really know what question I was going to ask you there. I was just kind of flowing with what you were saying. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, Karl Marx, you know, mm. Jewish and origin and Protestant and upbringing and atheist and choice uh, becomes one of the great secular prophets of the 19th century because he has a concern for not just the suffering, but he's got an analysis of his critique of political economy in which structures at the workplace create asymmetric relations of power, bosses and workers, of capital and labor. And that Gegenstand, that struggle, that class struggle, that class tension, that class conflict could be very much a vehicle through which, and here Marx is very close to the uh, the best of the romantics, right? He wants individuality to flower and flourish. Remember that wonderful description in the German ideology, right? He can't stand the kind of specialization, bureaucratization, Mm. domination of ordinary working people. He he believes their lives have the same value as anybody else's life. It's a radical democratic sensibility that cuts against the grain. He and Ingalls are on the run by the ruling classes, hunting them down. Mm. Uh, uh, And that's something to build on it. And we're living in a moment now, ecological catastrophe intensifying, nuclear catastrophe possible, the economic catastrophes with all of the rule of capital in all of their different forms. It can be regional, as you point out, in the EU. Mm. Right? It could be tied to the nation state. It could be regions within a nation state. All of these forms of capital over labor. And they're shot through with their various forms of patriarchy and white supremacist practices. But most importantly for me is the uh, the age of empire, the thing that our dear brother Eric Hausmann uh, tried to continually re- remind us of, that these empires, the American empire, Soviet empire is gone. Those two emerged after 1945 with the de and over time the complete undercutting of the British Empire, empire upon which the sun never set, who would have thought <laughs> that the aftermath of that empire would be the United Kingdom? You would think that would go on and on and on. Well, the Portuguese thought that for a while, too. The hundreds of years, the Spanish thought that for a while, too. Mm. You see. Well, now the American Empire undergoing its decay, its decline, and the, uh, the Soviet Empire still shot through with its forms of domination and repression. The Chinese empire shot through with its forms of domination and repression so that you have to be able to keep track of the ways in which predatory capitalism is connected to these imperial units and these nation states and these regional uh, uh, regimes or organizations and also how it seeps through every nook and cranny of our hearts and minds and souls. Mm. It saturates the commodified way of looking at the world, of manipulation, of domination, of stimulation, of concern about transaction rather than communion and so forth. It's almost the Martin Buber, I versus I thou versus I it, you know. And that I thou that Marx was concerned about in the manuscripts of 1840. Forward. So how do you actually have ways of transcending these forms of alienation at the workplace, species alienation, personal alienation, and so forth? 
These are very, very rich and indispensable notions for any serious talk about empowering poor and everyday people mm. at a moment in which greed is just running amok in its institutional and structural and personal forms. So you mentioned that American empire, and I want to know what you think are the implications of America's imperial role in the capitalist world system for the structure of American society and for the American economy? Well, I think Brother Martin Luther King used to say, when you drop bombs on Vietnam, they also fall on ghettos in America. They also fall in poor whites in Appalachia. They fall in barrios of our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters. They fall on reservations of our precious indigenous brothers and sisters. There's a direct connection between militarism abroad and not having resources for jobs, housing, health care, education, and for the militarization of the domestic uh, uh, context. And that's what we're dealing with right now with these police and so forth. Mm. The police have always been major threats against uh, vulnerable peoples, especially black people. Uh, But the wholesale militarization that took place under neoliberal rule, where the police departments begin to look more and more like military units in Baghdad. And so you you go for misdemeanor and you get a militaristic response. Sister Breonna Taylor, in the middle of the night, they come in banging her door down as if she's a member of the mafia or as she's committed some crime, like she's actually killed somebody. And they're looking for a little bag of drugs and end up killing her with no accountability, no responsibility, no answerability whatsoever. So there's a direct connection between foreign policy, which is imperial activity, and domestic policy, which is corporate-centered and corporate-contained and corporate-driven. And so the result, of course, is that um, you end up with a highly impoverished working class, wage stagnation. You end up with spiritual bombardment coming at them and their children because they hardly gain access to those non-market values like intimacy and vulnerability. You always have to be tough and willing to pose and posture like you're ready to fight every second because the terrain is the survival of the slickest. It's almost worse than social Darwinism, survival of the fittest with Herbert Spencer and company because survival of the slickest really is the is the amplifying of Thrasymachus. Plato's Republic. Everything is might makes right. Everything is greed and good. Everything is domination and manipulation. You see. And uh, um, you know, it's that's that's part of the grimness of our world. It's part of the uh, that's icy darkness that Weber saw in his writings. And he looked out, he, says, he didn't see, just see disenchantment. So there's an icy darkness expanding with the combination of commodification, bureaucratization, objectification, and domination, all 40s, creating this iron cage for the species. I asked Chomsky the other day, we had a wonderful dialogue at the Progressive International with your lovely, lovely companion and partner. I salute 
and Adler too. But I asked Chomsky, I said, you know, what makes us think that we as a species even have the capacity to avoid self-destruction? You know, what makes us think that ordinary people have the capacity to determine their own destiny, this radical democratic vision, you see? And all these are speculative questions, but there are the skeletons hanging in the closet. And we say, well, we don't really know. Look at the historical record. It's a record of crimes and follies and greed, but it's also resistance to those things. But precisely because we can raise those questions mean that we become more fortified. We become more dedicated. We become more devoted to ensuring that we have some evidence that we as a species can avoid self-destruction, that we as human beings can govern ourselves at the workplace. We don't need the bosses. We don't need the state. At workers' control, we can have workers' councils. We can have democratic deliberation. We can have democratic cultures in which we learn from each other in terms of jazz, hip-hop on the one hand, flamingo on the other, ribetico on the other, the folk songs that moved Wordsworth in his early radical years on the other, or Robert Burns in Scotland, those beautiful folk ballads. We haven't even got to the Irish yet. They probably got richer folk ballads than the the Brits. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I read something else in that regard. But to have that kind of deep human coming together that doesn't homogenize our specificity, but it uses our differences as a way of deepening communion and community rather than deepening domination and subordination. That idea of democracy, I mean... You know, that's that's so important, I think. That's the kind of, you know, obviously the idea that we're sold of democracy is a kind of representative democracy that always comes alongside capitalism, that always comes alongside. You have democracy in the realm of politics, but you've got to have free markets in the realm of the economy and they're very separate and never the twain shall meet. And, and there you see the hypocrisy. Exactly. Because the liberals come along and say, we are so concerned about the concentration of power within the political sphere. We've had monarchs and and kings and queens, we must have rights and liberties. We must have equality under the law. And you say, well, what about the concentration of power in the economy? Mm. With the oligarchs, with the monopolies, the oligopolies. They are just as dictatorial as anybody. So, yes, you know, we're with the liberals in terms of making sure we don't have kings and queens and unaccountable power in the political field, but you end up with these monarch-like entities in the economy, global and national and regional. And you say, also, you're not really serious about freedom. Oh, I see. You want liberty for a few. I see. I thought you really believed in universality. You want selectivity tied to your class interests. The same would be true in terms of gender and race. And again, you know, Marx and the others uh, who made this critique uh, are indispensable voices. They really are. I guess I I wanted to ask you, do you think that democracy can be a weapon against capitalism? Do you think that by deepening democracy, whether we're talking about in political parties, in our social institutions, in our economic institutions, in our workplaces, in our communities, that can start to actually erode the power of that kind of oligarchical, you know, those monopolies, oligopolies, bankers, politicians, the ruling class over our lives. 
Well, I tell you, my dear sister Grace, that um, see, I come from a black people whose anthem is lift every voice. Lift every voice. And when you get the voices of those slashed on called everyday people, in all of the decision-making processes and institutions that guide and regulate their lives. They're not going to choose poverty. They're not going to choose decrepit schools. Mm. They're not going to choose lack of health care. They're not going to choose, you know, rat-invested housing, you see. So that, that democracy from below take seriously those voices as they're wrestling with social misery and suffering. And they're going to shape their destinies in such a way that lo and behold, their children might be able to go to quality schools like the ruling class, that their mothers and fathers might have health care like the power elites do, Mm. you see? So that democracy from below is deeply a threat to any hierarchical power, be it in the political realm or in the economic realm. And that's where the rubber hits the road. Because it could be true, and this is where Eugene O'Neill's great uh, great indictment of uh, American capitalist civilization, the greatest play ever written in, in the United States, uh, The Iceman Coming. Mm-hmm. Because he was a strong leftist. He was an anarchist like Chomsky, my dear brother Chomsky. But he uh, he argued that, like Dostoevsky, most human beings would choose greed over liberty. Hmm. And even the possibility of joining the greedy at the top rather than risking solidarity with the impoverished because it looks like it's too hard. It's easier to think that somehow you're going to be the next Gates, Rockefeller, whoever it is, you see. So you dangle that 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 carrot of Horatio Alger from Rags and Riches. And this has been very much an American project in terms of our distinctive form of individualism. Mm. But but he and Dostoevsky, of course, have a have a have a critique of the species. They, they believe, in fact, that we human beings would rather choose authority as opposed to liberty. Mm deep liberty. We'd rather choose to follow the Pied Piper rather than organize ourselves and run workplace ourselves. Mm. And part of the radical democratic project is to show that they're wrong. Mm. Is to yeah. show that they're wrong. But it's a serious battle. Yeah. It's a very serious battle. There's no doubt about it. You talked a bit there about um kind of you know liberal individualism uh and that has really come to affect you know obviously it's it's integral to the way that capitalism sustains and reproduces itself but now you have individualistic feminism individualistic anti-racism individualistic environmentalism where you stop using your plastic straws and you you know do your recycling and then suddenly everything changes absolutely and individualistic forms of dealing with white supremacy yeah so you, you get a black president, lo and behold, he represents us. We have finally won. Our battle has, has now been deeply fulfilled. The civil rights movement has has produced exactly what it wanted to produce. Then you got all these black folks still impoverished, mm. no health care, unemployed, 
underemployed, uh, 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 subordinated at the workplace. And you begin to see mm, these top-down individualisms, these, these bourgeois forms of individualism, no matter how many people are represented at the top, different colors and women and so forth, you still got the class hierarchy in place. Still got imperial hierarchy in place. And so in that regard, I think it, we're, we're now just, you know, we're reaping what we sow. Chickens are coming home to roost in terms of seeing ways in which all the black folk at the top, all the women at the top, selected by means of working through the class hierarchy without a critique of that class hierarchy itself, still locked in the forms and structures of domination. Before I let you go, coming to that point of how we resist, how we stand in solidarity with each other, I always like to end the show with my guests telling me a kind of campaign or, or project that they're involved with that they think listeners can go out and just like look at, think about, maybe get involved in right now. So do you have anything that's on your mind, particularly at the moment? I would say right now we need to cast a, a limelight on the progressive international. Mm. It understands the subtle interplay between specificity. We're all in our specific nations, our own specific communities, our own specific bodies, but solidarity in every corner of the world. Because without that solidarity, the very condition for the possibility of humanity called into question and so we can be local and global at the same time we can be intellectual and spiritual at the same time we can be political and personal at the same time we can be existential and economic at the same time but put radical democracy at the center of it which is the focus on poor and working people Mm. of all colors sexual orientations nations and so forth that kind of internationalism very different than the more liberal cosmopolitanism. We're not talking about, you know, these yeah. little uh, fascinating, uh, titillating uh, parlor games of multicultural elite. But we're talking about serious struggle mm-hmm. of social movements on the ground here in, here in every part of the world. Thank you so much, Dr. West, for an incredible interview. Thanks so much for joining me on A World to Win. But thank you. I'll tell you, Tribune is so blessed to have you, and I appreciate you being so patient.